thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Christmas is always an exciting time of the year for me, and this year I'm extra excited This because I have the coming of my own son. Uh, it would be my assumption that many of us here tonight are excited in this season, that it brings up good memories, and with the virus, we might approach things differently than we have in the past, but nonetheless, it's a time to look forward to. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of memories, and as we discussed last Sunday, we can celebrate things like this so long as we remain focused on the God from whom all blessings flow. If your Christmas celebration is done in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're giving thanks to God the Father through him. But that's the big problem with Christmas, right? Are our Christmas celebrations truly focused on God or have they been co-opted by commercialism? That's the question we got to ask ourselves. Are we celebrating the one who saved us from our sins or the stores that saved us on some stocking stuffers? Christmas should be focused on celebrating and commemorating the birth of Jesus Christ. Our celebrations can include a variety of things from worship and and songs and gifts and meals and decorating and stories and caroling and fruitcake and eggnog, which I found out earlier this week. I can only drink two glasses of eggnog before I get a tummy ache. (laughs) But while not not everyone who participates in Christmas fully gets it, all of those things are best done when they are done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I was looking it up this week. Christmas is celebrated in over 160 countries. It's 160 countries where there's an opportunity at least to make a connection to the coming of Jesus Christ. I would venture to say that many people's first thought on Christmas is Santa rather than Jesus, though. This evening... In our attempts to focus on Jesus in Christmas, I want to help dispel some of the myths around Christmas to help us redeem the season. People are often attacking Christians uh, and the Christian roots on Christmas even. So I want us to be well prepared when those attacks come. I want us to joyfully wonder before the awesome reality it is that Christ came to this earth. So tonight is going to be a mixture of three things. It's going to be a little bit of a history lesson, uh, a Bible study, and a time of worship. We're going to have words up on the screen. I hope that you all will sing with me throughout what we do tonight as well. Uh, And I do want to put a a, a disclaimer of sorts or announcement of sorts in the beginning. I am heavily relying on a book entitled 25 Christmas Myths and What the Bible Says. That's the title of the book. It's by Pastor Gabriel Hughes. Uh, who I've got to meet before. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a, a pastor down in Texas. And I highly recommend that you grab a copy of this on Amazon. Uh, it makes an excellent Christmas study. And so there will be quotes and things from that throughout the evening. And if you want to do it, what I'm going to try to do with my own wife is look at a myth a day for the next 25 days throughout the Christmas season. Uh, so that book is 25 Christmas Myths and What the Bible Says by Pastor Gabriel Hughes. But before we go through walking through these myths, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for this opportunity to come together tonight. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to look at history, to sing songs of praise together. Lord, I pray that you are the focus. That in this Christmas season, we remember the reason and that we wouldn't just use that as a clever uh, uh, moniker or or motto or whatever you want to call it. But we truly remember the reason is that that we celebrate is that Jesus came. Jesus came to this earth. He stepped out of heaven to live that perfect righteous life and then to be placed on a cross, not for his sins, but to take mine upon him, to take all of those who would believe in him. To take their sins and to cover them with his blood. And then we celebrate the resurrection three days later when he arose. And it assures us of our own resurrection, of our eternal life. And we're just ever thankful that you would grace us, undeserving sinners, with such a great blessing. Lord, you are worthy of all praise. And Lord, I pray that we want to get things right, not for our own uh, uh, factual, intellectual uh, uh, acceptance, Lord, but because you're truth and we want to know you and we want to know the truth about you. So, Lord, may we focus on you this evening and serve you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned, we're going to walk through a variety of myths. It's going to be a mixture of history uh, and uh, uh, what the Bible says. And uh, so just buckle up and let's go. (laughs) The first myth that we're going to look at this evening is that Jesus was born on December 25th. I think that a lot of us have probably heard this myth before. Uh, Some, maybe not, but the very first myth for us to discuss is that Jesus was most likely not actually born on December 25th, on that exact day there, but this has been the day selected to celebrate Christ's birth. So I want to ask, why? Why December 25th? Nowhere in the Bible do we see this date. We're not given this date in scripture. The birth of Jesus is only shown in Matthew and Luke, but there's no specific date uh, given uh, or detail given to us to give us a specific date. So where exactly did that come from? If you've looked this up before, you may have heard something like this. And this is a quote from the partnering material. It said, the most widely accepted theory is that Roman Emperor Constantine had Christianized an existing pagan holiday. In 274 AD, Emperor Aurelian, who persecuted Christians and declared he was a god, chose December 25th as the birth date of Sol Invictus, the god of the unconquerable sun. But then in 3336, Constantine changed December 25th to the birth date of Jesus Christ. No longer a celebration of the birth of the sun. It became a celebration of the birth of the S-O-N sun. Get it? <laughs> if you're like me, this is probably what you've heard if you looked into the story. You, you've heard Christians co-opted a date from a pagan calendar. Uh, at least that's what was always thrown uh, at, at me in these kinds of discussions and there's a small part of you that might even get the heebie-jeebies when you think about that, right? Like, we don't want to think, oh, man, we just took something from pagans worshiping the sun god, the, the birthday of Sol Invictus. That, oh, that doesn't feel right, right? <laughs> uh, and we don't want to just have some reskinned version of a pagan holiday. So let me go over some historical facts. It is true 
that there was a Roman uh, holiday for Sol Invictus on December 25th. But now I want to ask another question that's not often asked. Why did Aurelian choose December 25th as the date for Sol Invictus uh, for that birthday? You might say, well, he's kind of a, a sun god, and they had the Saturnalia, the festival of the sun, which began on December 19th, and it carried through the winter solstice. The winter solstice is December 21st, and according to pagan tradition, the sun died on the 21st, and it's speculative, but maybe Aurelian considered that the sun was dead for three days on the 22nd, the 23rd, and the 24th, and then came back to life on the 25th. So where would he come up with that idea? In 224 AD. Pastor Gabe Hugh Gabe points out that 40 years before Aurelian dictated the temple to Sol Invictus, or dedicated, I'm sorry, the temple to Sol Invictus, Hippolytus of Rome, a secondary a second century theologian, wrote in his commentary on Daniel that he believed that Jesus was born on December 25th. Well, before this pagan holiday was ever created. A Christian theologian calculated the way that he did. I'm not saying he was right or wrong, but he, he put it way before that December 25th was the date that he calculated as Jesus' birthday. And before Hippolytus, there was Clements of Alexandria, and he stated that he believed Jesus was born on the 6th of January. The difference between those two dates is where we get the 12 days of Christmas from, from December 25th through January 6th. Gabe writes, after Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was buried in a tomb and then back to life three days later. Is that where Aurelian got his idea for the death and resurrection of his son, God? I'm not saying it is or it isn't. What I will say is this. If one wants to argue that a celebration of Christ's birth was meant to replace a pagan holiday, one could just as easily make an argument that a pagan holiday was meant to replace a day celebrating and remembering Christ's birth. The Christian tradition that December 25th is the birthday of Jesus precedes any pagan tradition that December 25th was the birthday of a false god. That's interesting history. So this gives us a framework for why December 25th was chosen to be the day that we celebrate Christ's birth. It's possible that Hippolytus and Clement were incorrect when they were calculating down to the days of the 25th and the 6th, but we won't know that with full assurance on this side of glory. We can figure out the exact date later on, but maybe Hippolytus and Clement knew something that we did not. They were closer to the time. They were a lot closer to all the facts of the day. I think one of the main reasons that we're tempted to distance ourselves from those dates is because we come to believe the myth that Christians swiped a pagan holiday. But let's look at the evidence of the setting that we actually see in Jesus's birth. We're going to walk through Luke 2, 8 through 14. It says, And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news and great joy that will be all, uh, for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. And you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace 
uh, among those whom, with whom he is pleased. Most scholars reject December 25th being the date for Jesus' birthday because of what it said in verse 8. And I don't think I put another reference to it. But go back to the first verse of that section if you could, brother. I'm sorry. In verse 8, it says, Shepherds took watch over their flocks by night. Shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Shepherds took their flocks out to the field uh, after the wheat and the barley had been harvested, which would have been from uh, like the late spring to uh, uh, late autumn. And the sheep and the goats would have eaten the grain that had fallen off the harvest floor and any extra grass or cut stalks. The fields then would have been plowed and planted for next year's crop during that time. Also, shepherds would have typically watched their flocks by night in the uh, summertime. That would have uh, been closer to uh, home in the, uh, they, or they probably would have been closer to home in the wet season if we're looking at December, which would be November to March. And the sheep and the goats would be brought into pens and protected from predators that way. But what we need to keep in mind is that while this may not have been typical practice in December at that time, even in that area, it wouldn't have been impossible Shepherding is a year-round job. Brother Larry was chasing cows this morning. <laughs> Shepherding is a year-round job. And in that area, it would not have been too cold to be at, out overnight, even in December. Even to this day in that region, shepherds can be found watching flocks. It might not be the typical practice, but it's not an impossible practice. So Jesus may have been born on December 25th. Or it may have been early spring. What we need to know is that when we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, we are not just assimilating to pagan cultural norms. We are celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ to live and to die for our sins. And we celebrate the birth of our King. So that's what that word Noel means. We heard a version of that song this morning, but I want to ask if you would join me in singing the first Noel this evening. Let me get my chord charts here. We're going to have the words up on the screen with us. Would you sing with me the first Noel?
born as our king. Let's look at a second myth this evening. A second myth uh, that is thrown around from time to time is this, that Mary wasn't married when she became pregnant. Let's look at the narrative in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. We're going to go through verses 35. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no more of his kingdom there will be no end sorry and mary said to the angel how will this be since i'm a virgin and the angel answered her the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child will be born and will be called holy the son of god every christmas we hear one of the most popular christmas hymns silent night it sings of the round yon virgin when, she, uh, when some people hear that Mary was a virgin, they assume that her and Joseph could not have been married. However, this stems from a cultural understanding, our cultural understanding and misunderstanding really of how the word betrothed works. They were married. Mary and Joseph were married. They just had not consummated the marriage. In fact, when Joseph finds out that Mary is uh, pregnant, he wants to quietly divorce her. You can't divorce someone that you're not married to. So we're going to look at this uh, uh, next week in our Sunday uh, morning sermon. But briefly, I want to look at verses uh, 18 and 19 from Matthew 1. It says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when, the Mary, uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Uh, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph was going to divorce her because although they had not consummated the marriage, they were legally bound to one another. They were bound together. And a betrothal is different than our modern engagement. So any, at any time in our engagement, one of the parties could have just said, nah, <laughs> just went a different way. But this was a binding agreement. During the betrothal period, the woman would spend time learning how to be a wife, how to serve in that role. And the man would spend time establishing their livelihood and he would be preparing a house for the family. And then after some time, there would be a wedding feast where everyone would gather together. And uh, then the wife would move into the home that her husband prepared and the couple would join together in one flesh, fully cementing the new family that would be formed. Jesus references this custom of preparing a place in a very interesting way that I want to show you. John 14, verses 3 and 4. says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. The church 
is the bride of Christ. Christ is our bridegroom. Through saving faith, our union with Christ is bound, but it'll be fully consummated at a later date. Revelation 19, 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Pastor Gabe wrote, We are in this moment Christ betrothed. We are his bride, legally promised to Christ. We are sealed by a covenant that we have not yet come into the dwelling place that he is preparing for us. So this was the case also with Joseph and Mary. At the time Mary became with child, she was married to Joseph, though their union had not yet been consummated. Because they were legally married, they were bound together. When Mary became pregnant, Joseph would have been able to put her away for being unfaithful to him. But in Matthew 119, Joseph is called her husband. Can we go? Yeah, he says her husband, Joseph. They were legally bound together. He would have had every right to put her away and to divorce her quietly. But an angel spoke to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph would remain betrothed to Mary. God kept them together. The round yon virgin was not unfaithful and God kept the couple together to be the parents of the Messiah. Would you sing with me now, Silent Night? Oh, oh, oh. 
get a third myth that Mary and Joseph were turned away by an innkeeper now of all of these I figured this one might get the most spicy <laughs> because we seem to have a picture of this but bear with me okay see if you envision this in your mind there's a young couple they traveled hundreds of miles to arrive at their destination in the middle of the night the wife is very clearly pregnant. She could give birth any minute. Her frantic husband knocks on the door of the local inn and an old man, the innkeeper, opens the door just a crack and says, what do you want? The innkeeper huffs and he says, please, sir. The husband's replying, my, my wife is about to give birth tonight even. We need a room right away. The innkeeper's eyes widen. He says, a room at this time of the night? He exclaims, have you not heard there's a census going on? I've got people from all over. There's no more rooms left. Nothing at all. I'm sorry, the innkeeper mutters and he starts to close the door, but the husband puts his hand out and stops him and says, please, the husband begs. We're desperate. I'll take anything that you have for us. The innkeeper rubs his beard and he feels sorry for this young man and his pregnant wife, but what could he do? There's no room. He couldn't turn away a pregnant woman in the middle of having her baby in the town square. So he comes up with a, situ a solution. He says, oh, I got a, a barn in the back. It's all I got. You'd have to share it with the animals. We'll take it, says the husband. He escorts the wife on her donkey to the rear of the inn where there's a stable full of donkeys and cows and sheep and pigs and whatever and goats. And the husband makes a comfortable place for his bride in a bed of hay and he apologizes about it not being the Hilton or Baptist Lexington. <laughs> Lovingly, she says, oh, it's wonderful. And that night she gives birth to her firstborn son they wrap him in swaddling clothes and lay him in an animal's feed trough because there was no room for him in the end no one was willing to give him a place to stay no one realized that they had just turned away the savior of the world that sounds like the christmas story right except here's a problem almost none of that is in scripture look at luke 2 7 Luke verse, chapter 2, verse 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. That one verse created that entire story with every detail that I just said. That entire story comes from that one verse. And entire characters of the Christmas story were added that weren't there and that's fueled some sermons on the innkeeper. Don't be the innkeeper you may have heard in a sermon before. That might have some moral value, but that's not in God's word. That specific instance there is not in God's word. And that one verse, we formed the ideas of Mary and Joseph traveling uh, and arriving late after everyone else had already gotten to Bethlehem. They were turned away by a mean old innkeeper and the savior was born in a barn, but that's not what the scripture says. 
in that one verse there. So let me lay out some facts that we have in the situation. They were traveling to Bethlehem. Why? Because there was a census. We think of them doing this on a long journey alone or slower than everyone else. And we think of Mary riding on a donkey the whole way. The best we can say about the donkey is maybe, maybe it was a donkey. Maybe she was on a camel. Maybe she was on a wagon pulled by an ox. Uh, It is not likely that they would have made that trip with just the two of them. The trip would have taken weeks and the the road that they traveled was not a very safe road. Think of the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. Traveling alone was not something that was done. So in all likelihood, they would have been with a large group and protecting one another. Then once Mary gets to Bethlehem, she was uh, not just about to pop right at that moment. Look at verse 6 of Luke chapter 2. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. It wasn't they just rolled up into town. She's having contractions while they're still a few miles out running in late on the donkey. Oh, give me a room, give me a room. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. That's what the scripture says. I've recently gone through some classes on the signs of labor. And believe me, Joseph was not dragging her through the desert with that going on. But then we still have to explain what happens in Luke 2, 7, where it says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Manger is a feeding trough. Why was Jesus placed in a feeding trough? And why wasn't there room in the inn? I'm going to focus in on the inn for a moment. Uh, Gabriel Hughes writes, he says, we might think of an inn as being like a hotel, But the word in can describe any place of lodging that's not one's own home. Keep in mind that the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament uh, Greek, uh, uh, the Greek word for in is kataluma. And it's commonly translated guest room. And that word comes up again in Luke 22, 11 to describe the upper room where Jesus and his disciples had their last supper. When Luke says the in here, We shouldn't think of the Holiday Inn. (laughs) Those are two different concepts. They weren't being shooed away by the front desk clerk uh, at a a hotel. We don't have to invent the idea of the innkeeper, as I mentioned earlier. Many sermons have been centered around a truly fictional character. The sermons you hear about the innkeeper often have this message that it's the uh, Christian duty to help those who are in need. And if we don't, we could very well be rejecting the Savior himself, just like the innkeeper did on that first night of Christmas. Doing this is not heresy. The point of the message isn't contradictory, I guess. But there are better ways to tell that uh, uh, sermon uh, and tell others to love their neighbor without adding to the Bible or uh, uh, turning the gospel into some sort of moralism. The Christmas story is not a story about how much we need to help those who are in need. We are the ones in need and Jesus is our help. That's not to say that we don't act in response to the grace we have received. But the ultimate point is not how I can be the savior for somebody else, but how the savior came for me. The point of Christmas is just that Jesus came to save us. He's the hero of every moment of Christmas. He comes to set the captive free. We rejoice for God is with us. We sing, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We're going to sing that right now, if you would, with me. Oh, come, 
O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive That mourns in lonely is I'll until the sun of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to Thou day spring come and cheer our spirits by thine advent Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow plays off the last one that we were looking at. And the myth is that Jesus was born in a barn. When we think about the Christmas story, it is reasonable that our minds harken back to the various nativity plays we've seen growing up. We think of the stables, that there's animals all around and the shepherds walk up. And then a few moments later, the wise men join them in that scene. And we'll talk about that later on in this Christmas season. But there's probably an angel suspended above the whole scene. Those are the things that we think of. However, this is an extrapolation from the fact that Jesus was laid in a manger and modernized to our more uh, current understanding of agricultural practices. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus was not born in a stable. 
This myth comes partly because we live in a different time and culture, but mostly it's because the scripture has been misinterpreted. Look back at those verses uh, six and seven from Luke chapter two. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So most of the misconception comes from the inclusion of the word manger. The word manger is a feeding trough for animals. That's why we picture Jesus being surrounded by animals, although they were not mentioned in this text. We don't see that a a sheep was feeding from right below his feet where he was laid or something like that. That's not in there. Uh, That's our assumption based on our cultural understanding. Pastor Gabe writes that the common dwelling in first century Bethlehem was comprised of two levels. The upper room was for dining and sleeping and the lower level for work and fellowship. And at night, the animals would be brought into the home to ensure that they wouldn't run away or be stolen. Obviously, the animals remained on the lower level while the occupants stayed upstairs and the heat generated by the animals also helped to keep the home warm. So let's return to the biblical facts of the nativity that we've discussed tonight. Mary and Joseph have been in Bethlehem for a while, uh, for some time at least. Mary goes into labor pains after they have been there for an undisclosed amount of time. And since they were here for a census in the town of David, they would have been staying with family uh, and the house would have been packed out with others uh, from the same journey. The word in literally meaning guest room is the same word used to describe the first Lord's Supper. And it's also the same uh, uh, or that is described in Luke 22 and Mark 14. And so it's also used right here in Luke 2, 7. It's talking about a guest room when it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn, in the guest room. This insinuates that there were a lot of people around. And so Mary and Joseph went down to the lower area of the house where there weren't that many people there. Uh, uh, And because they wanted some peace while she was giving birth. (laughs) I don't have a context of this. I'll know pretty soon. But I can imagine you don't want a house full of people around while all that's going down. (laughs) We sang Silent Night, but I'm sure it wasn't quite that silent. (laughs) Right? And so... Uh, just because Jesus was born in the lower area where the animals would have been does not mean that there were animals there. The family could have helped out. They could have stored them somewhere else. We don't know for a fact. Is it possible that animals were there? Sure, but we don't. that's not a fact we're given from Scripture. And that's what we're really looking at tonight. Uh, it said in the text, keep in mind that Luke is giving an account of a historical event, a great historical event. All these elements are important to the story. The baby Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lied in a manger or laid in a manger because there was no room upstairs. These are not just standalone facts. It was customary to wrap newborn babies in swaddling clothes, but it's not customary to lay them in mangers. So why did Mary put them there? Because there was no place for them in the upper room of the house where everyone slept. A lot of people were in this house. This is significant for what Luke intended to convey. In Luke 1, 2, he introduces the gospel by saying that this was an account of eyewitnesses. So here in Luke 2, 6 and 7, he's showing the reader that there were many witnesses to the birth of Christ. Mary and Joseph weren't by themselves out in a barn. There was no place for them in the room means the house was full of family. 
where they were at. Also remember what the angel said to the shepherds. Being placed in a manger was a sign for Jesus to be recognized. The shepherds would have ran into the small town of Bethlehem looking for a baby. And though it was small, there could have been multiple babies all over the place with all these families coming in. And they wouldn't have, uh, 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 there wouldn't have been more than one with the specific details of being wrapped in swaddling clothes and lied, laid in a manger. It's suggested that feeding troughs would have been built into the side of the wall of the lower level of the house there. And so the shepherds would have been able to just peek inside all these different houses without having to knock on and interrupt the, all the other houses that they would have gone to. They would have just been able to see that uh, the, the, the baby right there. And if this ruins your perspective of Jesus's lowly beginnings, it shouldn't. Instead of being born in a palace, which was visible from Bethlehem, the king of kings was born in a peasant's home in the part where animals were kept, in the place where animals slept. Christ stepped out of heaven and became lowly for our sake. He became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus sacrificed everything for us, even his life. So this Christmas season, be imitators of Christ. Look at Philippians chapter two, verses three through five. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's look not to our own interests and remember that there are those who are in desperate need of hearing the gospel. It's Christmas season. The best gift that we can do or give is the gift of the gospel. If you don't know how to articulate it, we got tracks right out back. I actually found a whole new stack. I'm going to be putting out some new ones, uh, some really interesting looking ones that someone might want to grab because they just look cool. Uh, I'll have some of those out in the coming weeks. The best gift that we can give to somebody is to share the gospel. If we do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. What better interest can someone have? Or do they have you if they don't recognize it than an interest in the gospel? That is their biggest pressing need in anyone's life. Jesus sacrificed for us. We can sacrifice some social comfortability for the sake of others. Let's share the gospel. Let's go tell it on the mountain. My favorite Christmas song. I wanted to end with this one. I'll, be, I'll give you a little fair warning. I sing the chorus maybe a little bit different, but just follow along with me. Would you sing Go Tell It on the Mountain with me this evening to conclude this look at the myths of Christmas? Here we go. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds kept their watching, or silent flocks by night. Behold, throughout the heavens, there shone a holy light. 
focus on the God of our salvation. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together tonight. Lord, I pray that we are edified by your word and that we would seek truth for your glory and that we would want to uh, serve you this Christmas season and that we would point others to you, that we would understand the main interest of others, whether they know it or not. The main thing they need is the gospel. Lord, may we share with others without fear, And may we point them to the God of our salvation. We're so thankful that Jesus would come to this earth, live for us, and uh, die for us. Lord, he did what we could not do. We are ever in, in, in service to him. Lord, you are truly Lord, truly master, truly over our lives. May we serve you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at Have a wonderful day and God bless.